Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have two things that I need to do before introducing our guest speaker. And the first one is to wish you a happy new year. Right? It's the first Sunday at Advent. The church calendar, the new year, starts today with the first Sunday of Advent. Thank you for laughing at my bad joke. As you know, uh, those of you who've been around Antioch for a little while, we've been really trying to embrace and dive into the church calendar over the past few years. Our Work of the People series, looking at liturgy, kind of talked about this and the, the role that the church calendar has, how it has influenced our worship. And the reality is that every society has a calendar, right, that, that uh, influences how they live. And our calendar is actually heavily influenced by the Roman Empire, the month of August, to recognize Caesar Augustus, January to recognize the god of Janus. And so uh, if we in the church are going to take the reality that our citizenship is in heaven, seriously, we must reshape our minds by marking our calendars differently than the world. And so that's what the church calendar does for us. It weaves in and out of the world around us. And it's not that we need a Christian calendar because we want to, you know, separate ourselves from the secular world. Like, you know, some people only listen to Christian music, right? Uh, no, we don't want to just be uh, sectarian for that example. But the, the point is not to put ourselves at odds with non-Christians, but the point is to keep God's story at the center of our lives. And we can do that by use, utilizing the church calendar. The church calendar recognizes that it is through the lens of Jesus that we read history and we interpret what has already gone on and what is currently going on in the world. Uh, we have the church calendar graphic here that we use uh, that kind of separates uh, the, the church year into two different categories, the story of Jesus and the story of the people of God. We just came out of that bottom half there of ordinary time, and now we are entering into the story of Jesus. And so you'll see the Advent season, Christmas tide, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. This is what is happening as we begin this new year of the church calendar. 
And again, I said today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent means the coming, and it is a time when we wait expectantly. Like Mary, we anticipate and we celebrate the coming of the Christ child and what God has already done. And the reality is that Advent often gets lumped in with Christmas, right? I mean, we already have our Christmas trees up, so we are kind of cheating already. Many, Some of you have gone and got your Christmas trees this weekend from the National Forest, but Advent is its own distinct season. Again, it's characterized by this expectant waiting. It's the journey of preparation, much like Lent is to Easter. It's how we commemorate God coming as the light of the world and overcoming darkness. And Advent has a threefold nature. It is both past, present, and future. And we live in the present in this time between the times. We know that in the past that God has come into the world through Jesus and that in the future he will be coming back to establish a new heaven and a new earth and the reconciliation of all things. And our time in the present is in this already but not yet time. And so what we do in Advent is we wait for the Christ child to come in a few weeks at the same time as we wait for Christ's ultimate return with the reconciliation of all things. So our hope is that for you in this season of Advent, you will both experience an, an acknowledgement and a recognition of the darkness and that things are not as they should be, but also that you would see the light at the end of the tunnel. That, that Advent would give you this proper perspective for Christmas, that the joy that we experience at Christmas is trivialized if we first do not acknowledge the pain and darkness that is still present in the world by recognizing Advent. So as we enter into this season of Advent, we hope that that will be in the back of your mind. Today, to kick off the first Sunday of Advent, we have a wonderful guest speaker named Paul Choi, the Reverend Dr. Paul Choi, and uh, he has been to Antioch a few times in the past, but he has never been to this building, so we want to make sure to be extra hospitable. He is the lead pastor at Village Church in Beaverton, just outside Portland. He has a doctorate in missiology with a special, a special emphasis on how churches work in, in the Korean world, in Korean culture. And he has lived all over the world, but we are very glad that he is here in Oregon and helping us and joining with God in the reconciliation of all things. So let's give Paul a warm Antioch welcome. Good morning. Happy New Year. <laughs> it's my great honor uh, and privilege to be here this morning uh, to share uh, from the Word. My name is Paul Choi, and I'm currently serving as the lead pastor at Village Church located in Beaverton. As many of you may know, Pastor Ken Weitzma, the founding pastor of Antioch, served at Village uh, for about three years between 2018 and 2020, and God led him and his family to other ministries after that, uh, though his time at Village was uh, short, shorter than what we hoped it to be. Our community was deeply influenced and shaped by his contribution and leadership, and I uh, must say that we are a different church from many years ago uh, in many positive ways because of his leadership. So we'll be forever grateful for him and also for uh, Antioch Church who shaped and nurtured him uh, for many years. Uh, last month, we also had this privilege to have one of your own, uh, Rick, with us as our guest speaker uh, for our mission celebration on the topic of creation care. And we were very blessed and challenged uh, by the message. 
I'm amazed to see how God is uh, connecting these two churches uh, through many ways, despite our geographic distance. And on behalf of the village community, I want to thank you for your influence on us, uh, which we take as a huge blessing from the Lord. Uh, today we are studying the Advent season uh, in which we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, uh, past, present, and future. Uh, the Isaiah uh, passage we just read depicts the eschatological vision of the kingdom of the Messiah, uh, which is shaped by shalom, that is, a restoration of peace and justice in the world. And at the very end of the passage, verse 5, prophet Isaiah states, Come, descendants of Jacob. Come, descendants of Jacob, in other words, people of God, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So because of the promised vision of the future, the prophet is calling the people of God to change their posture towards the present. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So what does it mean for us to walk in the light of the Lord? Many aspects of the call can be and should be considered from a personal implication to social, national, and international implications, but I want us to focus on just one aspect of the call this morning. That is, what does it mean for each one of us here today to walk in the light of the Lord, especially in light of the message of the incarnation of Christ in this Advent season? Let me repeat, what does it mean for each one of us here today to walk in the light of the Lord, especially in light of the message of the incarnation of Christ in this Advent season? At the heart of the Christmas message is that Christ, who is the very nature God, came down to the earth as a human, namely this message of incarnation. So John the Evangelist writes in his gospel, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the truth, the perfect wisdom and grace. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, says John. And surprise, surprise, he continues, the Word he, who existed from the beginning became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is basically the, basically the gospel proclamation of the evangelist. God has come down to the earth and became like one of us. Into this world where people desire to claim themselves to be gods and goddesses, this God, who is the Alpha and the Omega, chose to come down and become like one of us. For this was indeed the scandalous gospel. The evangelist of the, of the gospel also starts his epistle, namely 1 John, by proclaiming the very same message. 1 John 1, 1. The word has come down and we've heard from him. We've seen him with our eyes. We've touched him with our very hands. He truly came down in flesh. The historical fact that God has come down in flesh is so shockingly important for this evangelist that he uses all the kinesthetic language to proclaim the very truth that he indeed came down in flesh, namely this humanity, this humanness of Christ Jesus. 
We must remember what was shocking to John and to the first century Jews and to the early church was not just the fact that God came down to the earth. I mean, that's shockingly amazing, but perhaps not really, at least to the first century Jews, because that had happened before, namely theophany. Remember Genesis 18, the story of the three heavenly beings who visited Abraham, who later found out that they were from God? You see, God came down. Remember Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled with God the incarnate, and Jacob said to himself, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. You see, God came down. Remember Moses and the burning bush? His Mount Sinai experiences where he met with God. God came down. Remember Joshua chapter 5, where the commander of the army of the Lord suddenly appeared before Joshua to conquer the city of Jericho? You see, God came down. For those who knew the Old Testament stories, yes, it is amazing that God came down again, but this time it is not the same as before. The Word became flesh, and the Word made His dwelling among us. What is so unique and what the Jews had never imagined before was that God came, became flesh. Yes, He can always come down. Yes, He can always make Himself known and visible to us. But God becoming like us, I mean like us, Yes, he can always control, reign, and take care of the world, for he is a good, good father and king of the cosmos. But God making his dwelling among us, I mean, in this filthy world. Does that mean that God was conceived and born from a woman's womb, chose to cause human laboring pain? Does that mean God was breastfed by a woman and was soothed in her arms at night? Does that mean God had the same physiology and the same physical limitations as other human beings, experiencing hunger, thirst, and fatigue? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God became a human. Isn't this a scandal of scandals? It was indeed a controversial debate in the early church, as there were so many ideas and opinions about the question was Jesus really a human? Whereas the divinity of Jesus was more easily accepted, it was the humanity aspect of Jesus' being that was more controversial and difficult to be agreed on. Humanity of Jesus, that was the scandalous part of the gospel. A strong reason against the humanity of Jesus in the first century was a school of thought called Gnosticism. You may heard of, the, of this word, Gnosticism, which is a collective term to describe various religious movements which stress salvation through Gnosis, meaning knowledge or enlightenment, that is, of one's origin. These movements had a lot to do with a dualistic view of the universe as represented in the old academy of Platonism, an ancient Greek philosophy which proposed to view and interpret the world with a dualistic mindset, an intelligible world which is a perfect, ideal world 
this material world, uh, like it's up there somewhere, as opposed to this physical world, this material world, namely the world as we experience it. There is a superior world out there, and we are living in an inferior world. Our destiny is to escape from this inferior, filthy, hopeless world and return to the spiritual realm, the world of true knowledge. So many deny that Jesus had real material body. And then some others added their thoughts saying, ah, it only seemed, it only seemed that he had a human body. And this school of thought was called docetism, insisting God could not really have come, become material since all matter is evil and he's perfectly pure and holy. It only seemed that he had a human body. Therefore, uh, the, the, the transcendent God could not possibly have united with such a corrupting influence. We now living in the 21st century after all historic church councils and lengthy theological debates of the early church over the centuries might choose to regard that all of these Gnostic and Docetic ideas are just nonsense and heretical. We might simply choose to accept the dogma, the doctrine of Christ's humanity, professing, yes, we do believe Jesus was fully divine and also fully human as taught uh, at church. But I want us to dare to attentively face the deeper reality today and see that these Gnostic, Docetic, dualistic tendencies have continued in various ways impacting the ongoing practices of Christians even today. They are closer to us than we can perhaps ever imagine. Most likely, they don't continue to exist today precisely in the ancient form. No modern Christian will hold such a radical dualistic view of the cosmos. But the Gnostic tendencies are fairly prevalent, and I could even say that we are not entirely free of them in our Christian experiences and in our Christian theologies so far. There are just so many maneuvering within us. For instance, how are you comparing your Sunday experiences to your everyday stuff on the other six days? Sundays and the other six days, which one are you feeling is more sacred than the other? What about the kind of work we do? Eating, drinking, sleeping, playing versus reading the scripture and praying. Which one is more spiritual and sacred? If you feel one is more sacred, sacred and spiritual than the other, what is the rationale, rationale in so feeling? If you feel that they are equal and similar, does that mean reading the scripture is not sacred anymore? Or does that rather mean that all everyday activities are also as sacred as reading the scripture? Thinking about our theologies and beliefs, what is our understanding about the goal of salvation? Are we presupposing an overly prominent place for the figure of Satan in the administration of the cosmos as if the entire world is in the Satan's rightful demand? Are we defining our salvation to be some kind of escape and detachment from this Satan-possessed, sinful world being rescued and entering into the heavenly kingdom, which must be somewhere out there? 
You see, Gnostics had negative attitudes towards physical creation and believed human destiny is to escape physical creation and return to the spiritual realm. Matter is evil and it is our souls that are sent to God. Physical creation is just a mistake. All the Christians today, like Gnostics, would not speak of creation in this way, this bluntly. We, the so-called devout Christians, sometimes have surprisingly similar attitudes towards the physical creation. Humans have fallen, we have sinned, the world has lost its way, total depravity, total hopelessness. In, in emphasizing the fall so much, this massive dichotomy is created. And like the Gnostics, we've come to have a similar endpoint. There's a deeper discomfort with the physical world as we know, somewhat Gnostic tendency to think of the world as essentially problematic and something that we should try hard to detach ourselves from. Even the Christian songs we sing reflect this Gnostic tendencies. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from the heavens open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Is that true? Oh yes, we are on a pilgrimage, but where to? Where will the heavenly city be built exactly? Revelation 21 says, I saw the holy city, holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Heavenly city coming down onto the earth. And think about the prayer of Jesus. He taught us how to pray, and this is how it goes. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians', Christians prayer is not take me to heaven. Take me to your heaven, nor let me enter into your heaven, but let your kingdom come onto the earth. What about this famous song? I love the tune, but think about the lyrics. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, we, we get the point, and I still love the song, but, but there's still an underlying assumption. As, as we worship, as we look into the face of Jesus, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Is that the purpose of Christian worship? Is that what He wants? Blurring the outline of our everyday lives, deadening the pain, enabling us to escape from normal physicality, Christian version of Eastern meditation, enabling us to attain disembodied state, partly through endless repetition of chosen mantras? Is that what a Christian worship is about? It is certainly striking how much of what we sing nowadays in our churches seem to concern only this very narrow relationship between the internal self, our souls, and God. There are a lot that talk about our internal self and God, but there aren't a lot about cosmic redemption, resurrection of the dead, our present and normal reality, whether it's pain or joy, our communities, for the weak and poor ones, our care for the planet. It almost seems our modern songs often celebrate this embodiment appearing to seek to accomplish this embodiment, you see? 
There's certain discomfort with the physical, discomfort with the world of matter, the Gnostic tendency to think of the physical world as essentially problematic, not the very satisfactory plan of God that one day will give way to a better plan B. Isn't our Christian experience and theology syncretized with such quasi-Gnostic beliefs? We talk about souls being saved, souls going to heaven, souls are immortal, and it almost seems our souls are not a part of this world. But in that aspect, listen carefully to what Wendell Berry has to say in his essay, Christian, Christianity and the Survival of Creation. I have been thinking about a dualism that manifests itself in several ways. It is a cleavage, a radical discontinuity between creator and creature, spirit and matter, religion and nature, religion and economy, worship and work, and etc. This dual, dualism, I think, is the most destructive disease that afflicts us. In its best known, it is mo its most dangerous and perhaps its fundamental version, it is the dualism of body and soul. The crucial test is probably Genesis 2-7, which gives the process by which Adam was created. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. My mind, like most people's, has been deep, deeply influenced by dualism, and I can see how dualistic minds deal with this verse. They conclude that the formula for the man-making is man equals to body plus soul. But that conclusion cannot be derived except by violence from Genesis 2-7, which is not dualistic. The formula given in Genesis, Genesis is not man equals to body plus soul. The formula there is soul equals to dust plus breath. According to this verse, God did not make a body and put a soul in it like a letter into an envelope. He formed a man of dust by breathing his breath into it, he, be, he made the dust live. Insofar as it lived, it was a soul. The dust formed as man and made to live did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. Humanity is thus presented to us in Adam, not as a creature of two discrete parts temporarily glued together, but as a single mystery. The long-existed dualism of body and soul has sometimes led ascetics to torture their own bodies in a hope that their souls will be in shalom, namely a more intimate soul-spiritual relationship with the living God. The long-existed dualism of body and soul, sometimes causing us to blame and hate our own body and fleshness for its dullness and idleness, as it becomes a burden for our souls as we seek to love the Lord more, saying to ourselves, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? But the biblical anthropology tells us to stay away from such dualism pagan compartmentalization it is not that we have a body, we are bodies. 
It's not that our souls belong to the Lord, whereas our bodies belong to this filthy, soon-to-be-doomed world. We are to be treated as unities. Our spiritual condition cannot be dealt with independently of our physical and psychological conditions and vice versa. We are psychosomatic beings, mystery, fearfully and wonderfully created. Our body is not a prison of our souls, nor is the world. It's the whole person that God created. It's the whole person to which God said, it is so good. It is so good. God came to bring salvation not only to the soul, but to the whole person in all aspects of life. God is pleased when we read the scripture, but he is also pleased when we rest in gratitude. God is pleased when we pray and develop our spiritual muscles, but he is also pleased when we care for our bodies and work out for our physical health. Please don't get me wrong, I don't mean to diminish the value of the so-called spiritual exercises, but I do know that the scripture is reminding us of the hidden pleasures and values that God is seeking from all aspects of our lives. And the highest affirmation of the physical is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a living body and made a home among us, living, breathing, eating, celebrating, and mourning. In this ordinariness of life, God became known through human flesh, breathing and pursing with all the limitations and capabilities we have, miracle and mystery twined together. To be theologically precise, Jesus fulfilled his earthly vocation not in his divinity, but in his humanity, in his flesh, through his body, walking among the poor, kneeling in prayer, eating with sinners, washing feet, healing the sick. Jesus' hands became a living extension of the heart of God. His bodily touch was central to loving and transforming people while on earth. God became flesh. This is the gospel. God became flesh. But perhaps we may have neglected this mystery of the incarnation for so long in our theologies, practices, and spiritualities. Even in the Apostles' Creed, our faith ancestors may have neglected the full ramification of this mystery. How does the Apostles' Creed read? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and born of the Virgin Mary. And the next sentence goes, He suffered un under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Between these two lines in the creed, instead of going straight from his birth to his death, I wish there were one more line in between. <laughs> he lived in flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived in flesh, and he was crucified. Why? If death on the cross were the only reason for Jesus' Jesus's incarnation, then perhaps he could have come down straight from the heaven to Golgotha as a grown-up man and be crucified on our behalf as an atonement and atoning sacrifice, if his death on our behalf was indeed our only need. But he chose to come as a child. He chose to be conceived in the womb of a human mother and nourished prenatally like any other child. Not only his birth, but also his life indicates that he had a physical nature. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. 
He grew up physically nourished by food and water. He experienced hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Surely he felt physical suffering. Not only the physical nature, he also experienced the psychological human nature. He thought, he reasoned, and felt the full gamut of human emotions. He loved, he had compassion, he was sorrowful and troubled, angry and grieved. He became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Again, he made his dwelling among us. His first 30-some years of life was not just preparation. It was not a waiting period for the only mission and task which is to be crucified on the cross. His whole life in flesh was a gift. Through his death on the cross, he gifted us with a new life. But you know what? Also, through his first 30-some years of life on the earth, he gifted us by having shown us how to live in flesh. Yes, he came to save us, not just our souls, but a whole salvation, healing, restoration, and revitalization in all aspects of life. He became flesh to show us what a redeemed life is like to show us what a gospelized life is like, to show us what God's originally intended life is like, to show us the beauty in everyday stuff, to reveal us the holiness of ordinary things, to open our eyes to see, accept, and rejoice in the gift of life as God has given us. He came in flesh to show us the contrast between our definition of holiness and his definition of holiness. When the Christ child threw himself into Mary's arms as he was nourished by her, that this image of dependent God was his definition of beauty and holiness in life. In a world where dependence on others and becoming a burden to others may be perceived as shame and lack of virtue, Perhaps God's definition of holiness as manifested in the Christ child is more about dependence on others and courage to be vulnerable, resulting in love through the relational fellowship. In a world where ability to rejoice even in the midst of despair, ability to conquer and overcome any trouble is perceived as faith, a strong faith. Christ Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, weeping and weeping at the death of his friend Lazarus. He showed us it is okay to be saddened. It is okay to cry. It is okay to remain depressed for a while. That's never an indication of lack of faith. That's how we live. Life can be filled with joy, but sometimes with sorrow and despair. That's okay. Christ showed us. The beauty of life, the beauty of our embodiment, as Christ has shown us, is different from what the world usually defines it to be. Try to think about how the pagans in the first century and even modern day culture defines what a beauty is. When you recall those statues of Greek gods and goddesses in their mythology, we discover how the Greeks defined what it means to have a beautiful life and a beautiful body. Can you recall those muscular, robust bodies of Greek gods and the images of Greek goddesses with lean muscles? Young, muscular, strong skin and body. 
That's the ideal life and body according to the pagan worldview. Even in our own cultures, we tend to miss our young age and days. We sometimes mourn because of our aging. We are hesitant to share our age with others. We spend money on anti-aging products. Perhaps we may be telling ourselves that aging is a bad and sad thing in life. But what does the message of the incarnate God say to us? But God became flesh. He was born as a child. He grew up. He aged. By submitting himself to the nature of flesh, he's showing us that aging is an inevitable concomitant of life. As the Koheleth put it in Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. We age rapidly. It seems the human body attains its peak of efficiency early. The rate of scar formation begins to decrease as early as age 15. Eventually, there is inescapable signs of physical decline, failing eyesight, impaired hearing, shortness of breath, high blood pressure. Often associated with these is a measure of mental deterioration memory lapses, and frequent repetitiveness. When a male adult, strong he thought he was, all of a sudden feels that he is not the same and not as strong as before, he becomes afraid. There's this sudden fear. Sometimes he mourns. When a female adult experiences major hormone change and suddenly realizes that she feels almost incapable of controlling her own emotion and body, she becomes becomes afraid. There's this sudden fear and sadness, and sometimes she mourns. When a semi-liquid diet replaces solid food, the digestive function becomes the focus of one's attention and one becomes increasingly dependent on the care of doctors and nurses. Perhaps then we think about what a bodily being we are, how much we appreciate our body, which used to function a little better. And we tend to think and feel more and more about death, how you desire your last days to be, and how to finish well. God became flesh. He became like us. He accepted and submitted to the nature and our creatureliness as humans. He showed us how to live in flesh. God the incarnate, who came as a child and aged like we all do, shows us that all this aging process, being biologically determined, is part of God's providence and is to be accepted and enjoyed with grace. So now what? Let me conclude. His incarnation, Jesus' incarnation, tells us this simple but profound truth. That is, life itself is a gift from God. Life itself is a gift from God. He came as the light in the darkness, as John the Evangelist says. And this light of the world shows us how to walk in the light of the Lord. First, The Messiah came to enlighten the world to see who the Creator, the Redeemer, the Restorer is. To enlighten the world to see who the Creator, Redeemer, Restorer is. And to walk in the light of the Lord includes seeing and accepting this Creator, Redeemer, Restorer. 
Second, the Messiah came also to enlighten our eyes to see how beautiful we are in His eyes, how beautiful our life could be in all stages of it, if lived with our trust in His unfailing love that leads us to yielding the fruits in season. He came as the light in the darkness to enlighten our eyes to, so that we could truly accept and love ourselves as we are, because such a healthy, healthy self-love in Christ becomes a basis for loving our neighbors as well. And third, he came to remind us of the beauty and holiness of ordinary stuff and everyday things that we perhaps may have taken for granted before. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, said the apostle. God is glorified even when we eat and drink in gratitude. God is glorified at our workplaces when our work becomes our service and love for Him and for others. God is glorified when we accept and enjoy ordinary stuffs and everyday things as we know that they are indeed gifts from God. You know, these past years through the pandemic have reminded us of the value and joy of ordinary stuffs. These past years have reminded us that only Christ can redeem the world. So we celebrate with God who came in flesh. Praise Jesus who came in flesh and shows us the true beauty of life. Praise Jesus who, who will come again to gift us with a life of resurrection. Grateful we are because of this life, but even more grateful we will be because of the bodily resurrected life to come. So let us walk in the light of the Lord, living in this gratitude and in this everlasting hope. God came in flesh, and this is the gospel. Amen. <laughs>